Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at my Facebook page. Uh, Yes, still at Facebook. Um, Please, some wonderful programmer with access to venture capital, please, please create an alternative to Facebook that is not terrible. (laughs) Um, Okay, but There are actually several things that I have linked to tonight on the Facebook page. So um, if you are able to, you should definitely check it out. Um, But you can find this and previous shows as a podcast as well on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. And it may be that I eventually just move everything over to the website, but for now... I use Facebook, as many others do, as a sort of necessary evil. Okay, so before we really begin in stories, I want to just do a couple of quick hits. So first is a PSA, uh, which is that if you have bought infants liquid ibuprofen products from CVS, Walmart, or Family Dollar recently, uh, you should definitely check online to see if it is part of a recall for products of this sort that ended up containing too much ibuprofen than should be given to uh, infants. So definitely uh, go to um, the Facebook page for that. If you have, I have linked to the recall page. Um, So yes, that is uh, a big issue. Um, Hopefully no one listening out there has uh, had any problem with this. Second, I would just like to give a shout out uh, because I didn't really have time to talk about it tonight because there were other things that I wanted to talk about a little more. Uh, A shout out to Mr. Murder Britches, <laughs> a bobcat in Utah uh, that just got released back into the wild. Uh, so again, for more on this adorable kitty, I have posted a link on the Facebook page. So yes, do go and look at the hilarious pictures of Mr. Murder Britches uh, being <laughs> released back into the wild. Okay. And uh, third, well, this is kind of really a story. Uh, I do want to give a quick update on NASA's InSight lander. So everything seems to be going really well uh, with the instrument arm beginning to unfurl and the lander has already started taking pictures of the terrain, which very excitingly looks pretty much perfect for the kind of work that InSight is there to do. Today, we can see the first glimpses of our workspace, Bruce Bannert, the mission's principal investigator at NASA, said in a statement. By early next week, we'll be imaging it in finer detail and creating a full mosaic. Now, it wasn't 100% successful. There was one tiny hiccup. We had a protective cover on the instrument context camera, but somehow dust still managed to get onto the lens, said InSight project manager Tom Hoffman of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, JPL. While this is unfortunate, it will not affect the role of the camera, which is to take images of the area in front of the lander where our instruments will eventually be placed. Now, it'll be another 30 to 60 days before the lander's instruments are fully calibrated and in position. 
And um, I thought it was really interesting that uh, Insight is a cautious mission. Uh, So basically, any unexpected readings will cause the probe to immediately trigger a fault and to go into safety mode until it hears from the operators back on Earth. And so part of the reason for this is that Mars is really, really, really far away. Uh, It takes 12.5 minutes for instructions to reach the probe. Now, remember, those instructions are are, uh, headed out to Mars at the speed of light. So in order to take 12.5 minutes, that's a long way away. And so it actually turns out that a fault has already been triggered, uh, which unfortunately delayed the first batch of images, but um, it isn't a big deal. We did extensive testing on Earth, but we know that everything is a little different for the lander on Mars, so faults are not unusual, Hoffman said. They can delay operations, but we're not in a rush. We want to be sure that each operation that we perform on Mars is safe, so we set our safety monitors to be fairly sensitive initially. And indeed, they have plenty of time. InSight's initial mission is set for two years. But as we know, NASA makes things to last, and they often perform for years beyond their initial mission. Okay, so let's move on now to talk about something a little different. Um, this isn't a necessarily from a... Uh, paper that's come out. It's more of a retrospective, but um, it was just a really fascinating topic. And so I thought it would be really interesting to share with you. Um, And, you know, as we get to the end of the year and people's thoughts turn to things like peace on earth and goodwill towards men or to other end of year sayings about our yearnings for peace and community, someone's discussion will inevitably turn to the problem of human nature and its supposed need for collective violence. Now, to some extent, we can say that individualized violence is something that we are programmed for, that, you know, we're always going to have people having fist fights and things like that. But does that necessarily translate to the need sort of deep in our uh, ancestral heritage to have collective violence or to go to things like war? Well, R. Brian Ferguson, professor of anthropology at Rutgers University in Newark, has recently published a piece in Scientific American that argues that the science for whether or not humans are innately militaristic is not that clear cut. Now, many evolutionary psychologists have argued that we have always had collective violence and that it traces right back to our common ancestor as chimpanzees also engage in collective violence. And so this is the stance of the hawks who see collective violence as inherent in our biology. Doves, on the other hand, challenge this idea. Now, I'm sure you've probably heard the terms hawks and doves used uh, in various situations. Um, In this circumstance, it was first uh, coined by the anthropologist Keith Otterbein. Now, for the doves, while the idea that humans have the capacity to engage in warfare, they say that there isn't evidence that our brains are specifically engineered to seek out warfare. They suggest that warfare only developed after a sufficient amount of complexity emerged, especially after the agricultural revolution. 
And so when looking for signs of war in the past, archaeologists look for four kinds of evidence. Artwork, weapons, clues left in settlements, and clues left in the bones of ancient peoples. Looking at Paleolithic cave paintings in France, for instance, some archaeologists see drawings which suggest warfare. However, others suggest that some of those figures actually have tails and that the lines, some of them wavy, might actually be shamanistic power lines rather than the swords or spears that the hawks would interpret them as. And so we do know that in ancient times, there was a lot of uh, shamanistic belief. And so it could very well be more likely to be something related to that than it is an actual depiction of an actual conflict. Now, however, when we look at wall paintings from settled agriculturalists, Thousands of years later, in the eastern Iberian Peninsula, we find clear signs of depictions of warfare and executions. And so that is definitely a difference between those uh, hunter-gatherers of earlier times and those settled agriculturists. Now, as for weapons, a weapon might actually look deadly, but instead be a sign of power or authority rather than for actual warfare. So, for instance, Ferguson notes that he uh, once believed that if you found a mace somewhere, that that obviously denoted um, that that person was a warrior. Um, and this is was in the um, the uh, Near East. And so... Um, but as he looked at the literature more and as he looked at things more closely, he realized that the maces they were finding didn't really look like they would have worked as actual weapons. And so it became clear to him that it, they were more likely uh, signs of ceremonial power rather than actual weapons. Now, of course, one might argue, on the other hand, that people may go to war with the everyday tools that they have, such as adzes or hand tools. And in fact, there's a German site where people uh, clearly had had a significant conflict and they were just using the uh, sort of ubiquitous adze, uh, which is A-D-Z-E, and that's kind of the um, the uh, sort of Neolithic um, axe sort of uh, tool that you often see in depictions of sort of cavemen, quote unquote. Uh, and so it can be hard to tell. As for settlements, while there is evidence that Neolithic settlements were often surrounded by mounted enclosures, it's unclear that these were actually for defense and not simply to delineate different social groups. And so if you see uh, in England, for instance, there's often these, uh, you know, large ditch uh, and mound uh, constructions around what has obviously been a small community of roundhouses and things like that. But if you look at them, they're not really that defensible. Uh, <laughs> they're mostly look like they are simply kind of a delineation that like, you know, this is our village, this is the boundaries of our village. 
And so that doesn't necessarily mean that they were trying to defend that land. It simply means that it might have been the place where they considered to be sort of the bounds of their shared land um, or their communal uh, lands and things like that. So we can't say for certain, uh, and especially some of them, those Neolithic ones, they don't really look like they could have been for defense particularly. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, sort of ditch and barrow, uh, building in England that really doesn't look defensive. It just looks like it was monumental and meant to sort of delineate space rather than, again, have some sort of militaristic use. And so as for skeletal remains, those are particularly hard to decode in the best of circumstances, honestly, a projectile buried with a corpse might be the cause of death, or it might be a symbolic tool for use in the afterlife for hunting, or it could simply denote the person was a hunter, or it could have been simply that that was a symbol that you buried with a person. It could be many things. Very few projectiles, I think it was uh, one in four, uh, leave marks on the skeleton itself, even if they end up killing someone. Because you can think of many people um, who have been killed in the past who were killed by projectiles, but those projectiles didn't necessarily touch any of their bones. Uh, And so that doesn't necessarily give you good information either. And of course, even if you find evidence of a projectile, that doesn't suggest necessarily that the person was killed in a large-scale conflict. They could have been murdered uh, by another individual or even by a small group of people because, again, this isn't an argument against individualistic violence. This is an argument against collective violence. And so those two are very separate ideas. I mean, they obviously both involve violence, but... When we're talking about them, we do try, we do want to be consistent in keeping them separate. Now, we may think that war has obviously been a constant companion to man. Uh, we certainly read history books that are often kind of skip from one war to the next. Um, but when you look at the record with an open idea about what you might find, the signs are actually not so evident. Now, obviously, mass graves are not unknown, and we do have mass graves from ancient times where it's very obvious that people uh, all died in the same way um, or at the same time. Sometimes it's easy to tell that those were um, through violence, but uh, for instance, a mass grave was just found recently, and it was clearly uh, from a type of plague. And so a mass grave even doesn't denote obviously, that those people died in a conflict. And so warfare has definitely been something that humans have engaged in for thousands of years, but not all people have engaged in it. And many peoples have had long periods of general peace with no signs of large-scale fighting. And so many archaeologists in the dove category suggest that water, that war, excuse me, as a collective enterprise emerged during the Mesolithic period around 9700 BCE, or about, you know, 10,000 BCE, something around there. 
And so that's around when the last ice age was ending. Now, of course, it actually appears in different places at different times, because of course, humans aren't monolithic in their habits. And part of the thing about uh, warfare is that it is often dependent on where you are. And so uh, archaeologists agree, for instance, that around 12,000 BCE, signs of warfare can be found along the Nile in northern Sudan. But they also note that fierce competition would most likely have erupted there between hunter-gatherers in the area, because at this time, it was moving from what had once been a lush landscape to a much more harsh landscape climactically, and thus food sources would have begun to decline. And when you have declining resources, that can lead to collective violence. In the Fertile Crescent, the earliest known fortifications around a village date to the 7th millennium BCE. And the first conquest of an urban area dates to between 3800 and 3500 BCE. In contrast, the southern Levant, the area between uh, Sinai and southern Lebanon and Syria, shows no sign of war before 3200 BCE. In Japan, signs of war don't emerge until at least 800 BCE, and they don't really ramp up into the development of wet rice farming around 300 BCE. Again, that switch to agriculture. In North America, there is a wide range of dates because, of course, there was a wide range of people. Uh, Unlike what some people would like you to believe today, uh, Native American tribes were very, very, very individualistic, (laughs) excuse me. Uh, And, you know, they were definitely not this kind of monolith that we sort of see today uh, that is often sort of modeled after a Great Plains warrior. Um, And so, In uh, Florida, the date is around 5400 BCE. In the Pacific Northwest, 2200 BCE. And in those Great Plains, peace seems to have been the rule until around 500 CE. So 500 years into the Common Era. And so all of this suggests that a move to a sedentary lifestyle based on the concentration of resources and the beginnings of stratification both hierarchically and by differentiation of groups, especially if they had access to different resources, are much more indicative of the kinds of uh, preconditions that you need to have in order for humans to become interested in collective violence. And Climate change has also been shown to be a factor. Uh, So, of course, as resources diminish, uh, warfare can emerge. And, of course, this is a fact that some of our politicians today might want to be concerned, more concerned about than they are. Um, So, yeah, uh, again, there is that old aphorism, which I think is, you know, it's an old aphorism that everybody knows because it holds more than a grain of truth, uh, which is that those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it. Um, And so, yeah, as someone who has studied history, 
uh, as their primary uh, sort of academic work in uh, college and um, and going forward. It's it's kind of unfortunate um, because there are a lot of signs of things where I just want to be like. I can show you when this happened 40 years ago and tell you exactly how that worked out. And let me tell you, it was not a good thing. It did not work out well for them. It's not going to work out well for us. Yikes. But unfortunately, I am just one person who is has zero power uh, when it comes to dealing with that sort of thing. But um, yeah, <laughs> call your congressman. Uh, I mean, part of the problem, of course, is that we hear whenever someone says, you know, call your Congress people, I kind of know that our Congress people are already going to be doing the thing. It's just that there aren't enough others who are doing it. Um, but even the people locally sometimes need to be reminded, though, especially our representatives uh, need sometimes to be reminded that they should be uh, actually supporting some really important things and that some other things that they might think are important aren't necessarily actually all that important when you think about the fact that there's no point in supporting some of these things if there's literally no place for us to live. Um, so yeah. Anyways, let's get back to this story. Uh, so ethnography also supports the idea that simple hunter-gatherers, and that's defined as those living in small, mobile, uh, usually egalitarian bands with few possessions, and which have large areas with low population densities to forage among, they generally don't engage in warfare because there's no point. <laughs> if you have few possessions, if you have an egalitarian society, if you have access to a large area where, you know, you can sustain yourselves, there is no reason for war. It's only Again, once they begin to form larger, more complex, and hierarchical groups, that warfare becomes more commonplace. And of course, part of the problem with our uh, narrative is that many scholars, whether consciously or not, have just assumed the fact that warfare is an inherent state of humanity. And so they haven't spent a lot of time looking for the places where it might not have been present. And so Ferguson writes... Debate over war and human nature will not soon be resolved. The idea that intensive, high-casualty violence was ubiquitous throughout prehistory has many backers. It has cultural resonance for those who say, who, for those who are sure that we as a species naturally tilt towards war. As my mother would say, just look at history. But doves have the upper hand when all of the evidence is considered. Broadly, early finds provide little, if any, evidence suggesting war as was a fact of life. And so it turns out that Ferguson has also done a, the studying to answer the uh, second sort of big question here. Uh, he has just written a book recently on the subject of chimpanzees and whether it's true that clearly it's in our genetic makeup because both we and the chimpanzees both have warfare in our blood. Um, and so, of course, that would suggest that the common ancestor that we share would have also had that. 
Uh, just to remind people, because I know sometimes it's confusing, uh, especially when people are often purposefully confusing it. Uh, we are not descended from chimpanzees or apes or any other primate. We share a common ancestor with them. And so, yeah. But anyways, uh, so he argues that while chimps may engage in collective acts of violence, it doesn't have the same cognitive dimensions as human warfare. And beyond that, it may not have the kind of uh, reasoning behind it at all that we would suspect. So he looked at 426 years of field observations and found that there are only 27 observed or inferred instances of intergroup killing between adults and adolescents. And of those 27, 15 come from just two pockets of time. And so he argues that one can make a better argument that these two instances in particular, from these two instances in particular, uh, one between 1974 and 1977, and another between 2002 and 2006, that they can be better explained as a reaction to human disturbances rather than the innate tendencies of the animals themselves. He therefore concludes that the idea that warfare is something that we are hardwired to gain engage in is not supported by the preponderance of the evidence. So the next time someone says that war is just an inevitable consequence of human nature, have them rethink that. Uh, tell them to uh, look a little bit harder in the history, uh, in the prehistory of humans, and see if they can back up that supposition. Okay, so now we're going to skip completely and utterly uh, switch gears, we're going to talk about a recent discovery in Canada. Now, I like this because uh, it's just, it's really funny. You know, a lot of people uh, believe in things like Bigfoot. And so they like to talk about how there's a ton of wilderness out there that no one's explored, and that there are still discoveries to be made. And so maybe Bigfoot is hiding out somewhere in that, you know, patch of Pacific Northwest that nobody has yet gotten to. Now, it's a point that I'll generally acknowledge even though I remain skeptical about the Bigfoot uh, part of it in particular. Um, you know, so many people have said that they've had encounters, and yet they've never produced any good evidence. Mm, it, it strains credulity. However, there are definitely still things out there to be discovered. And so a team counting caribou uh, in British Columbia recently discovered a massive cave that had never before been mapped and may in fact be the largest in the country. And so it was discovered last April, but they're just reporting on it now. Uh, and the cave lies in the Alpine Valley of the Wells Gray Provincial Park. It has a mouth of around 328 feet across. This is, in fact, almost as wide as the Statue of Liberty is tall. The width of the cave is 197 feet and extends at least 443 feet straight down, according to the CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting uh, Company. Researchers surmise that the cave was probably created by glaciers over tens of thousands of years and has gradually been exposed as those glaciers have retreated. 
Now, a full exploration of the site has not yet been mounted, though preliminary research suggests that it's certainly a significant find. The scale of this thing is just huge and about as big as they come in Canada, archaeological surveyor John Pollock, one of the researchers who explored the cave, told Canadian Geographic. Now, there is a short video of the cave, which I have posted to the Facebook page, um, so you should be able to find that. Um, at least um, it should be there uh, by seven. And so um, it's it's just crazy. Uh, it's just it's really kind of mind blowing. There is a waterfall that cascades down more than 525 feet over the edge. Uh, researchers suspect that the water then flows into a subterranean river, which emerges almost 7,000 feet away at an ev elevation that's over 1,500 feet lower than the water's entry point, um, according to Pollock. Now, the cave has actually been compared uh, to the famous Sarlacc pit from uh, Star Wars's Return of the Jedi. However, it will actually be named in consultation with First Nations people in the area, who, of course, have probably known it was there all along and just didn't bother to tell anyone else. <laughs> um, because, of course, you know, every time I, every time a, uh, you know, person of European descent or, you know, an American or um, something like that says, you know, oh, we discovered this thing. There's usually someone there who's like, it, it was it was there all along. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, but plans are underway for an, ex, uh, an expedition of the site in uh, 2020. So indeed, there are still large things out there to be discovered by modern science. But again, probably not Bigfoot. All right, so we are going to take a break and do some PSAs and some show promos. And uh, when we come back, we will talk about an interesting new stories, a interesting new story about drug addiction. So hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! 
Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over five million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. I'm so glad we left that stupid party. No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Because you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. <laughs> what about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing... Megan, I'm... look out! Look out! <laughs> Oh. oh my god, Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm. I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent in the wrong direction. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No genius. I'm not serious. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andi Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Okay, we are back. And like I said, we are going to be talking about a new study on uh, drug addiction. And so this is a study that suggests that there might be ways to develop better plans for dealing with some kinds of drug addiction. A new study by neuroscientists at the University of Sussex in England have analyzed brain scans of drug users that suggests that heroin users find getting high at home more pleasurable, while cocaine users receive more pleasure from getting high outside of the house uh, in places such as a club. Now, of course, some people might be thinking to themselves that this is rather self-evident, but it's important to do the actual research. The study was relatively small, but it makes a fair amount of intuitive sense given the fact that heroin is a sedative while cocaine is a stimulant. Dr. Silvana DePiro and Professor Aldo Badiana 
Bariani at the Sussex Addiction Research and Intervention Centre at the University of Sussex in collaboration with colleagues at Sapienza University in Rome, Italy, uh, recruited people with addiction to both cocaine and heroin who received treatment at a medical centre in Rome. Professor Bariani, who is the director of uh, SEREC, says... These findings challenge the classic view that all drug produce all drugs produce identical changes in the reward region of the brain and that they are addictive because of their ability to induce an extremely pleasurable state. This study shows that the provision of methadone alone is not sufficient for treating heroin addiction. Treatments should also tackle important social and environmental factors, for example, evidence-based interventions such as cognitive behavioral therapy and ecological momentary interventions. Uh, and so he explains that is such as smartphone applications that people can access anywhere at any time in their real life when they feel an urge to abuse drugs. And so he says these should be critical parts of the treatment process. So what they did was the researchers first asked 53 people to recall a drug episode and to state how arousing and pleasant the experience was with each drug in each of the two different settings. They then asked a second group of 20 people to do the same while their brain was scanned using an fMRI machine. They found that nine out of the 10 preferred that nine out of 10 people preferred heroin at home. A little over a quarter reported enjoying cocaine at home, with 50% showing a pleasant or mixed state when taking cocaine outside of the home. Um, and so they found that the scenarios produced opposite neural, neural responses in the brain region involved in processing reward and context. And so uh, those are the prefrontal cortex, the caudate, and the cerebellum. And so they surmise that the emotional and neural responses to such drugs uh, can be changed depending on both the drug itself and the settings in which it is used. Dr. DePiro, who undertook this study for her PhD, said, The findings related to the cerebellum are particularly interesting because that part of the brain helps us understand the context of our emotional experiences. So it may explain why the effects of drug taking vary by setting. This also has important implications for the therapeutic treatment of drug abusers. Considering the inter interaction between drug type and location could help us to prevent relapse. Governments should adapt policies to ensure that therapies take into account the impact of the environmental factors on the risk of relapsing and on its role in supporting recovery from addiction. Now, uh, Speaking of heroin and other opioids, uh, this, uh, new, this next story is also uh, drug-related. Uh, a new story in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine, um, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association, um, suggests that having your wisdom teeth pulled might actually be a way that some teens and young adults first become exposed to opioids. And so according to the study, young people who had their wisdom teeth extracted within a year's time were more likely to be abusing opioids than those who hadn't. And of course, the opioid 
crisis reached a new peak last year uh, with more than 60,000 people dying. It was so significant that it brought down the overall life expectancy for the U.S. Of course, we have other issues with that, but that's a story for another day. Now, while most of those deaths are caused by illicit opioids like fentanyl, there is a risk that those exposed to prescription opioids can become addicted. The researchers from Stanford University looked at the medical records of just under 15,000 patients uh, between the ages of 16 and 25 years old who had been prescribed opioids by a dentist in 2015. They then took this group and compared them to a similar cohort of 30,000 patients who had not had a prescription. By the end of a year, 5.8% of the first group had received an opioid abuse-related diagnosis from a doctor. 6.9% were prescribed another batch of opioids three months to a year after the initial prescription. In the control group, only 0.4% received an opioid abuse-related diagnosis. The findings suggest that a substantial portion of adolescents and young adults are exposed to opioids through dental clinicians, the authors wrote. Now, of course, this is also especially important as evidence for the mass extraction of wisdom teeth has become less clear. A 2016 Cochrane review found that there wasn't good enough evidence to extract the teeth without there being clear evidence of actual impaction, such as pain or swollen gums. It was also found that no, that there was no lowered risk of other dental problems later on by actually removing the wisdom teeth. This work raises two really important but separate questions. Do we need opioids and do we need the procedure? Lead author Alan Schroeder, clinical professor of pediatrics at Stanford, said in a statement. And I think that's a really good question. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, uh, I did have my wisdom teeth out at some point. I don't remember what I was given. One of the other suggestions they do uh, have is that if you are going to be taking people's wisdom teeth out, maybe consider just giving them um, NSAIDs, you know, larger, slightly larger doses than you can get over-the-counter NSAIDs um, or other, you know, regular pain pills rather than opioids. Um, So yeah. All right. Well, let's jump topics now. And uh, we have a couple of stories about some really cute and adorable animals. Uh, So uh, the first one I want to talk about is to give a shout out to Wisdom, the uh, Laysan albatross. And so Wisdom is at least 68 years old, uh, making her the world's oldest tagged wild bird. And uh, so she has returned to her breeding ground once again and laid an egg, which she will hopefully uh, successfully rear. Uh, She did that for another chick last year. And uh, she's actually come back pretty much every year for several years to uh, raise a chick. And which is actually kind of unusual for albatrosses because they don't necessarily do that. 
And so these birds are found in the northern Pacific Ocean, and they breed in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, uh, and they form basically just enormous breeding colonies. And so uh, she was first banded back in 1956 as an adult, uh, which again makes her at least 68 years old. She was banded by biologist Chandler Robbins near a U.S. Navy barracks. She was actually one of 8,400 albatrosses banded that year uh, amongst the hundreds of thousands breeding on Midway Island, where uh, she continues to return today. And so it was actually Robbins who spotted her again uh, 46 years later and was able to realize that she was a bird that he had met so long ago and actually banded. And they said it's really amazing because um, some of these early bands were aluminum and, you know, these are seabirds. And so the aluminum has corroded um, and fallen off of some of the birds over the years. Now, the two islands of Midway uh, are basically one of the most important sites for Pacific bird breeding. They are host to 3 million seabird nests, including 1.2 million albatross. Now, we can surmise that wisdom is approximately 68 years old because Laysan albatrosses begin to seek mates at around 5 years old, just before reaching maturity. Midway during nesting season is an overwhelming experience, said Beth Flint, wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Every square foot of land and much of the ground underfoot is occupied by a nesting bird. It's like another world. Now, one of the other things that lace and albatross are known for are their courtship dances. So once again, I have posted a link uh, to a video for of uh, a couple doing a courtship dance uh, on the Facebook page. So uh, definitely tune into that as well. And so Wisdom turned up to her nesting site on October 29th and again is expecting to hatch an egg with her mate, Akea Kami, uh, who she raised a chick with last year and who she first met back in 2006. And so they do mate for uh, long periods of time. And so um, it takes a bit over two months for the egg to incubate with another five months in the, in the nest before the hatchling is ready to become a juvenile bird. Now, both partners take care of the egg, with each taking turns both incubating and caring for the chick. And so uh, when they are on the nest, the other one is out foraging for food and vice versa. And so uh, also last year, for the first time, one of Wisdom's chicks, fledged in 2001, was observed to have returned to nest just a few feet away from where Wisdom has her nest. Now, it's almost certain that other fledglings that she has raised have returned to nest, uh, but they just simply haven't been banded by the researchers in particular. Midway Atoll's habitat doesn't just contain millions of birds. It contains countless generations of families, countless generations and families, families of albatrosses, said Kelly Goodall, also of the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, if you can imagine when wisdom returns home, she is likely surrounded by what were once her chicks and potentially their chicks. What a family reunion. 
<laughs> so uh, though the numbers may seem big, these birds are actually still recovering from hunting in the early 20th century and from invasive mice that can attack the birds. Um, they've also been affected by the huge amount of plastics that float in the water as their diet consists mostly of things that are sort of in the top layer of the ocean surface, uh, mainly squid and fish eggs. So yeah, <laughs> uh, even though, you know, wisdom is this really amazing and cool per bird that's, you know, plugging along, we do still have to remember that they are still endangered in some respects. Okay. So thinking of world's oldest animals, let's turn now to Methuselah, which is uh, an 85 plus year old resident of the California Academy of Sciences Steinhardt Aquarium in San Francisco. She is a four foot long Australian lungfish who first came to the aquarium from Australia in 1938. And since she too was already an adult, she's most likely between 85 and 90 years old. Now, lungfish are also one of the oldest groups of freshwater fish, having been around some 400 million years. And so they're called lungfish because they have a unique swim bladder that not only works to control buoyancy, but also acts as a primitive lung, allowing the fish to breathe air. Now, there are only six living species of air-breathing lungfish in the class Sarcopteregi. Other species include the African and South American lungfish. And so those species are known to burrow into mud and breathe for months at a time when their ponds dry up. They're even known for occasionally using their fins to walk to a neighboring pond. Uh, I forgot to find a video for that, but I will because there are some amazing uh, videos out there of lungfish walking around um, in the mud. It's pretty crazy. So how is it that she's so old? I want to say it's my care, but it's not. It's genetics, said Alan Jan, senior biologist and Methuselah's primary caretaker at the Steinhardt Aquarium. Now, the previous record holder was Grandad, a lungfish at Chicago's Shedd Aquarium who died at the age of 84 last year. Um, and I've been to the Shedd uh, Aquarium, and I'm wondering if I saw him. I don't remember having noted it, unfortunately. Now, Methuselah does have a few traits that probably help her get along. She eats everything that I offer her, and she eats the most, according to Jan. Now, apparently her favorite foods are prawns and figs, and she also likes certain people more than others. And so, yeah, uh, there are some people apparently that even though she's a big eater, she won't let them, she won't take food from them. And also in general, lungfish, despite looking rather like armored fighters, are actually really sweet. Uh, apparently they enjoy frequent belly rubs and head scratches just like, quote unquote, underwater puppies, according to Jan. Um, and also like many humans, uh, she prefers small, comfy places of her own rather than being in the larger tank with other oarfish. Uh, so the they have two other oarfish, but of course they're both, uh, sorry, lungfish, not oarfish. That's a t 
totally different kind of fish, lungfish, um, but they're half her age. So, you know, um, <laughs> and in fact, they actually tried moving her to that larger tank with a, has sort of a larger current in it too. And so what she did was she spent her time resting upside down on her back. <laughs> Once they moved her back into her own, uh, you know, more comfy and cozy tank, she actually righted herself as if nothing had happened. She was absolutely fine, according to Jan. It wasn't a scare or health scare, but we didn't want to concern the public. (laughs) So Australian lungfish are a protected species. And so Methuselah is a great ambassador for her wild counterparts who do suffer with human-caused habitat loss. So not good, but uh, hopefully she will continue to live Uh, for many years to come, being really adorable and getting lots of uh, belly scritches and uh, or belly rubs and head scritches. (laughs) All right. So let us spend the last few minutes circling all the way back to space. And so I want to talk about the fact that NASA, uh, their origins, spectral interpretation, Resource Identification Security Regolith Explorer, or OSIRIS-REx craft, uh, has recently completed its 1.2 billion mile journey to the asteroid Bennu, Um, and it actually reached it this past Monday. The craft is now 11.8 miles uh, from Bennu's sun-facing surface and has begun a preliminary survey of the asteroid. It will start flyovers of Bennu's North Pole, Equatorial Region, and South Pole, and will get as near as four miles above the surface with each flyover. Now, the researchers are hoping to refine estimates of Bennu's mass and spin rate in order to generate a more precise model of its shape. It will help, as will insight, to increase our understanding of how planets formed and how life began. Now, OSIRIS-REx has an added benefit. It will improve our understanding of asteroids that might actually impact the Earth. Uh, And so these space objects have resources also. uh, So things such as water, organics, and metals that might someday be exploited by humans. As explorers, we at NASA have never shied away from the most extreme challenges in the solar system. In our quest for knowledge, said Lori Glaze, acting director for NASA's Planetary Science Division, now we're at it again, working with our partners in the U.S. and Canada to accomplish the the Herculean task of bringing back to Earth a piece of the early solar system. And so, yeah, it is very exciting. And so, yeah, um, it is, we basically, part of the thing about Bennu is that technically it could come and hit us, uh, but hopefully it won't. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they are going to be doing some really interesting science there. And again, as with all NASA missions, they'll probably be telling us all sorts of great things that we will, that I'll be able to report to you soon. But It is time for me to relinquish the studio. Uh, Please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next and have a great night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. 
For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.